everyone, this is Kina Wolfenstein, and you're listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. In this series of episodes, I'm interviewing other therapists, and we are breaking down experiential and bottom-up modalities of healing, as well as exploring complex trauma and the intersection between complex trauma and other mental health issues. Today, my guest is Raina Legrand, and here's her bio. Raina Legrand is a somatic therapist, coach, and speaker facilitator specializing in racial identity, trauma, relationships, and embodiment. Her work is guided by a deep belief that the relationships we choose are opportunities to practice new behaviors and values that weren't available to us in our families of origin. In her practice, she primarily helps mixed-race adults find peace in their identity and build relationships where they feel emotionally connected. She also works with interracial couples and people of all identities when her schedule allows. And I will be sharing her website and Instagram in the podcast description below. Before we launch into this interview, which is amazing, I learned so much from her. Just a reminder of some other resources available in my link tree. So I'll include my link tree below. Um, I have an upcoming workshop on inner child healing and parts work for CPTSD. That's going to be on August 6th. There will also be a recording available. So I would love to see some of you there for that. Um, You will also find my practice website in the link tree. And we do have two new therapists at my practice that are accepting clients right now. One in Texas and one in Missouri. And then I have two other workshops and a number of other resources available in my link tree. So that will also be included below. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to the podcast and enjoy this episode. Okay. Hi, Raina. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. Why don't we just start with, um, can you just speak a little bit about yourself and and the work that you do and what you want to talk about today? Yeah, so I am a somatic therapist and coach and educator. Um, uh, my, my background is in trauma treatment, and I primarily work with mixed race individuals in my practice, helping them to find peace in their identity and build community, build friends where they can feel emotionally connected. And I also work with interracial couples. Um, And then occasionally with other folks as well who want to do somatic work um, related to, you know, their, their relationships and related to sort of their place in the world. Um, Yeah. And I reached out to you. I think there were a few things that I'd sort of brought up that are pretty central to my work and just salient in this moment. Um, You know, one of them being how, social anxiety or rejection sensitive dysphoria or trauma. I use all those terms kind of interchangeably Mm -hmm. and how it shows up sometimes, you know, how those things uniquely impact people with in-between identities um, and how trauma in particular, racially racialized trauma um, can really make people struggle with their sense of identity Mm. and sense of belonging. And then also just how the wounds that you know, happen in our relationships and in community also need to be healed in community. Um, So those are some of the things that I thought that we could explore today. Yes, I am so excited to to dive into all of those topics with you. Um, To start off, um, could you just speak a little bit about kind of the unique experiences of people with mixed or you said the in-between identities and just what you see those populations struggling with? Yeah. So, um, over the course of like being in practice, 
um, I've sort of focused my niche more and more. And so I used to kind of work more broadly with people with in-between identities, um, you know, whether that be at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, um, and so on. And, and now, like, I really just focus on mixed people. But I think what I'll share is definitely going to feel relevant for people who have other identities where they mm-hmm. feel in between communities. Um, you know, what I notice, and from my own experience, too, as a mixed person and as a queer person is, there's these two questions that are always um, kind of like the umbrella, I think, for folks within between identities. And those questions are, who am I? And mm-hmm. where do I belong? And those things really go um, hand in hand, right? That like each kind of influence the other. And then, you know, we see these questions and the ways that mixed people or others struggle with this show up in, you know, where we feel like um, we can take up space, who we feel mm-hmm. like we want to get closer to, um, what we feel like we're entitled to around, you know, our feelings about um, racial injustice or so on and so forth. Um, so that's kind of like, I'd say like the umbrella of, um, you know, how these issues show up in folks. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a lot, a lot of themes that have to do with like belonging, belonging and identity, which is definitely super important. And then, um, I was looking at the notes here that you sent me. So how does racial trauma fit into that? Can you kind Mm -hmm. of distinguish between like, would you say that everyone with those kind of in-between identities, is that an experience of racial trauma in and of itself? Mm -hmm. Or is that kind Mm -hmm. of its own unique experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say for when we're talking about people with mixed identities, like their racial trauma is pretty central, right? Yeah when we're talking about maybe other identities, it's related to race in that it's related to sort of like the impact of colonialism Mm -hmm. and segregation between communities. Um, And, you know, I think, so racial trauma in particular, I think um, impacts this people in, in two ways when it comes to belonging. The first and like identity, the first is, Mm -hmm you know, like the literal sort of fragmentation that happens in our brain on like the neurobiological level, like parts Mm. of our brain stop talking to one another, right? So there's the emotional side of our brain and there's the logical side and both are very important, right? And both of those parts of our brain hold different aspects of our identity and our personality. And so when Mm. we experience trauma and those parts of our brain stop talking, um, you know, we can feel maybe just like parts of ourselves at a time, right. Yes. Rather mm-hmm. than a whole like layered person. Right. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the other way that I think that happens that I think is related to the neurobiological experience is, um, just what happens after we experience a trauma, whether personal or collective or historical, mm-hmm. is that we start to question everything. We question ourselves. We lose trust in ourselves. Yeah. Um, and it's just such like an ungrounded feeling, right? We're like always trying to find our way, but never feeling like that's actually happening with some level of success. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. That makes so much sense. And hearing you talk about the, the historical collective or individual trauma, it was making me think about how like all of those layers kind of exist when it comes to racial trauma or I, or I guess any trauma kind of related to like oppression and, and being part of a marginalized group, because there's like that individual level that you experience of, of any kind of, you know, racism or or racial trauma. And then there's all of the like layers of those historical and, and intergenerational elements of it. So it's very, it's a very like complex kind of trauma in that way. And I feel like people definitely don't, don't talk about it enough. And so I imagine that for folks that are dealing with that kind of trauma, it can be hard to find resources and community, you know, maybe to the same level as people that are dealing with just an individual trauma without that historical element. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, there's a therapist and, um, and educator Resma Menicum. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Oh yeah. She wrote my, or he wrote my grandmother's hands, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And he says, you know, trauma in a people, uh, I'm going to mess up the exact quote, but like trauma in a uh, um, culture or wait, what does he say? He says sort of basically just that like trauma is decontextualized. And so mm. we see things as personality we see things as culture we see things as just the way things are instead of having like this historical context and so it's really easy for people to gaslight themselves it's really Mm -hmm. easy for people to be gaslight gaslit through the experience of seeking care um whether the individual is like actually thinking like oh this is like a racial or historical intergenerational trauma thing right Um, we take, we like, we take on so much personal responsibility for our health and our mm. well-being, And like, that can cause a lot of shame when yeah. we're struggling and it's not like as simple as, oh, you just need to change these behaviors or change your thought patterns. Right. Right. That, that is so true how it gets decontextualized. And I feel like that's especially true in our culture that like post-colonialism is so hyper-individualistic, right? Like we're so, um, we're so individualistic and not acknowledging of like that, that community aspect and that historical aspect. And so, yeah, all of these things get taken on as like individual problems, individual struggles, Mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which made me, I was really excited when I read you talking about wounds that happen in community needing to be healed in community. And I totally mm-hmm. agree. And I, I want to hear about like what that could look like or what, mm-hmm. what you've seen that look like. Um, because I feel like just, you know, capitalism and just the way that our country is structured has made it so difficult to do that, that community healing. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, you know, a couple of months ago now, the U.S. Surgeon General released a report on um, essentially, you know, declaring that there's an epidemic of loneliness and social isolation, right? Like this is um, something that affects all of us, whether it's, you know, there's so many layers to it, you know, there's the pandemic, there's technology, there's our busy lives, there's the, I think the way that all of us are impacted by trauma and stress that keeps us just struggling to connect with other people. Um, And so, you know, a lot of times like we're existing in our little bubbles, whether that's, you know, literally we're by ourselves or maybe we just have a few people in our life, or maybe we do have people in our lives, but there's a lack of like intimacy with those people. 
Um, and you know, all of that, you know, whether it's social anxiety or the structural things, keeping us separate from people or whatever, um, you know, when we, when we don't get to, or we don't give ourselves the experience Mm. of being in connection with other people, we don't get to have a different experience than we had in the past. Mm, right. Yeah. And so I always say like, you can take all the vitamins you want, you know, you can exercise, <laughs> you can go to the doctor. That's all so important. But, you know, if you aren't like also being in connection with other people, having some level of intimacy with other people, then your, your body, your nervous system is just going to struggle. Like we really need other bodies to, yes. you know, co-regulate and to be for, you know, our nervous system to be in a state of regulation and that impacts our immune system and, you know, our, um, chances of developing chronic illness and so on yeah. and so forth. So. Um, and, you know, I think the challenging thing is sometimes like people, because of the way things are decontextualized, people don't again, right. I guess I'm sort of echoing myself here, but people don't see that what they're struggling is a relational wound, right. Mm, They feel like what they're struggling with is this is a chemical thing that's happening in my brain. And like, there's a chemical aspect, um, but it's, it's really about, you know, how comfortable, is your body around other people. Yeah. And that's kind of part of the like hyper individualistic approach to mental health, you know, which has been to literally pathologize, you know, every mental health issue by saying that it basically is all in your brain. It all has to do with like your brain, not functioning properly or these chemical imbalances and not looking at like your environment and your community and your relationships and like the actual material conditions of our lives that, that impact us. And I feel like it has to do with us being mammals. And like, we're so, we're, so like divorced from the reality that we are mammals and that mammals are, are wired to thrive, you know, through connection and through like attunement with other mammals, nervous systems. Um, so Mm -hmm. all of that is so, so important. And as, as I was hearing you talk about that, another, another question that was coming up for me was like, um, how, how do, uh, how do communities, give people the opportunity to have mm-hmm. like reparative experiences. Cause you talked about having mm-hmm. new experiences, right? Like being able yeah. to, and to me, that's such a, such a part of any trauma healing is like, we have to have experiences that disconfirm and kind of like mm-hmm. repair those trauma mm-hmm. experiences, experiences of like safety and connection and attunement. Um, and I, I feel like that has to be such an important element of any communal healing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing is like making space for actually spending time together, right? Yeah. I mean, we know that so many of us struggle to meet up with our friends as families, like we struggle Mm -hmm. to meet up or like sit around the table for dinner, right? Or making the time to, you know, have those family reunions or whatever. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that's the first piece is like, really seeing that like making the time for one another is crucial, you know, mm-hmm. like it's kind of like life or death in yeah. a way. Yeah. Um, I think the second piece is like, we all have to do our part to have a, a working relationship with our bodies where we are developing self-awareness and like developing skills around self-regulation so that like we can gift that to other people because 
we all also need space to be dysregulated. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like, mm-hmm. if I need to be dysregulated, then I need somebody else to like have the capacity to be regulated and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a really important piece. And I know that a lot of people who listen to your podcast, and I'm, I'm sure this is an experience you have in your own healing, like just because we're in in therapy or whatever doesn't mean that the people in our lives are, right? <laughs> right. And, yes. <laughs> and therapy doesn't have to be what people do to heal, but like, you know, we need people in our lives to be doing something, right? Yeah. 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 To have it be almost like a relational effort to like break those patterns. Mm -hmm. Or I think of it, especially with like intergenerational trauma, like it is so Mm -hmm. powerful when multiple members of a family are willing to go to therapy because then it gets to be this like group effort, you know, to break Mm -hmm. those intergenerational trauma cycles. But yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the times what ends up happening is there's like, you know, one person in the family that's like, let me, let me try to break these cycles. Um, But then their like family environment is still so in those trauma-based patterns. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's really hard. And, you know, I think the, the third piece that kind of goes along with that that sticks out to me is like, we are not practiced as a culture at grieving. And I think mm. so much of what shows up in our bodies is grief. And instead we'd like rail, we like just kind of bulldoze over yeah. it. Yeah. Right? Like try to and bypass like, it yeah, we bypass it. We try to fix it. We don't want to sit with it. And like a lot of the times I know that you do like inner child work, right? I do a Mm -hmm. lot of parts work. Like a lot of times, like these parts of us that are holding grief, like they just need to be witnessed. And it's really scary for us as individuals to do this for ourselves and to do this for other people where we just sit and slow down and allow there to be space for the part to like, stop, you know, trying to like hold back this with a, this dam, you know, mm-hmm. of like this flood of grief. Oh um, my gosh. Yes. I, I resonate so much with that. I think that witnessing compassionate witnessing is like one yeah. of the cornerstones of my, my practice working with complex trauma survivors, because yeah, especially because you know, uh, a big piece of the complex trauma experience is to not be witnessed, right. To feel like invisible and unseen and unheard in these complex, Mm -hmm. painful experiences. And so just that practice of being able to like compassionately witness and just see and hold space for like how, wow, this was really intensely painful. Like, holy shit. Mm -hmm. Um, is so powerful, but yeah, I I think that that's another issue in our culture is that there's really this emphasis on like fixing and correcting and managing things, right. Which is very bypassing. And so people can really struggle to just hold space for pain without immediately trying to like correct it or turn it into something good. Or, you know what I mean? Like kind of toxic positivity almost. Yeah, absolutely. And You know, I mean, that to me is one of the drivers of like complex trauma continuing to happen is like this whole cultural experience around like suppressing grief and then it shows up in, you know, violence and drug abuse and um, yeah, attachment trauma, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Can you talk a little more about how you see grief? showing up with these particular issues? Like what is, what are some of the common Mm -hmm. experiences with grief for people with in-between identities or people that have faced racial trauma? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
you know, there's so much that is lost and missing. Mm. Um, there's so many experiences, you know, for instance, that mixed people throughout their lives have, have had that have, you know, deepened this wound of like, not knowing what your identity is feeling lost. Right. Mm. Um, and there's so much that, you know, I mean, now doing this work, I see how many resources there are for mixed people and queer people and disabled people and trans people and stuff. Right. But like, and my parents didn't have those resources, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, there were a lot of ways I think my parents um, succeeded in helping me to develop a positive identity, but there were a lot of, there's a lot of language that they didn't have Mm -hmm. that, you know, as a little kid, I was just like swimming in these feelings. Um, and I see that a lot with clients too, like feeling like they don't have language to talk about their experience um, or that, you know, they're the first person in their family to be mixed, right? They're, they don't come from like necessarily oh, yeah. a family, right? You know, share identities um, with their family. Oh and so that's such yeah. a simple idea, but I had never <laughs> realized that before that like that, yeah, being in a mixed identity or yeah, having like mixed race identity that you might not have any other family member that shares the same experience as you that never like quite found on me before. That's so interesting. And you might not know anybody in your town who's mixed, right? Right. Like you might, or like your school, like you might be the only mixed person. And I think it's just a lot to hold. Yeah. Right. And so then it's like, and then no, right. Nobody's witnessing that. Yeah. (laughs) And very isolating. Yes. And that's where the grief comes from, right? It's like sadness around just like what is and what isn't. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So then can Mm -hmm. you speak a little bit about, so I know you do, you're a somatic therapist, you do parts work, you focus a lot Mm -hmm. on embodiment. What are Mm -hmm. some of the ways that you like to work with these issues as like an experiential therapist? What have you found to be helpful Mm -hmm. and and powerful with this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I first, you know, was practicing as a somatic therapist and then found parts work through Mm -hmm. um, somatics. And there's such an amazing pairing truly, because when we're doing somatic work, it's like, you can be bringing up all this stuff in your system. That's like a different language, right. Or like a different way of looking at things. And so I think parts work is really helpful for somatics A mm-hmm. and B, I think parts work is really helpful for people with in between identities or layered identities, right? To, you know, yeah. I mean, there are definitely different experiences that I've had in primarily white or primarily back black spaces. Mm-hmm. Um So, um, you know, I find parts work really helpful for that. And I think, you know, the first, one of the first tasks is, or, you know, things can run parallel to each other. They don't have to be linear, but one of the first things is like, how do we help you develop a secure attachment to yourself? And I think like that really comes through building trust with yourself. And so in practice, that looks like helping clients you know, develop um, their own process for sort of noticing, okay, here's what's happening in my body. Okay, Mm -hmm. here's the parts that are present right now. You know, here's um, what I do to sort of 
help myself when I'm in this state or that state. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a acronym that I use called it's peer. Like, you know, you're standing on the peer. It's similar to rain. If folks know Tara Brock's um, rain strategy, recognize, accept, investigate, nurture. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. But I chose the word peer because in, you know, semantics and we talk a lot about the experience of being flooded versus like, you know, growing your container mm-hmm. um, to like be able to hold more of your emotional experience. And so the idea is that, you know, instead of being in the water, you know, how can you get on the pier? And so the P is presence, developing presence, you know, the ability to slow down and be with yourself. The I is to um, investigate with interest. The E is to extend a hand metaphorically, like to sort of like say, Hey, like it it makes sense why you're feeling this way. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, that witnessing piece. And Mm -hmm. then the R is to respond, which isn't always to regulate. Sometimes like the response might be to reach out or to express your anger. Yeah. Um, so that's like one of the big pieces. And then the other piece is, you know, developing, I've been trying to think of like a non-military metaphor, but like really like developing your army, (laughs) Mm. like, like thinking about how are you going to either sift the relationships in your life that, um, you know, you want more from, or you want a different, different set of boundaries with, and like, how are you going to develop, you know, the types of relationships where you're nurtured and you're celebrated, Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I do a lot of like helping clients with like, how do I make friends? How do I, you know, um, talk about X, Y, Z with people. And then of course there's all the ways in our, like our body will sneakily sort of try to like, you know, sabotage our journey of, of connecting with people because our body wants to keep us safe and our Mm -hmm. body's like, you know, hey, you've experienced all these instances of being rejected, of experiencing microaggressions, like, yeah, whether that's, and that could be in your family, right? In right. the relationships where you were supposed mm. to, where it was like supposed to be built in that yes. you were emotionally safe. Yeah. Right. So it's like partly strategy, right? Partly like action, and then partly the slower somatic work of noticing what happens in your body and how do you, how do you like, you know, you can negotiate with your body around like, Hey, we're going to push ourselves here. We're not going to push ourselves here. Maybe it's a yet, um, you know, and like, you know, somatic work can be slow, you know, as I'm sure, you know, and, and listeners who have listened to other podcasts, um, there's no like trauma work, somatics, um, it yeah. can be a, it can be both like a slow process. And then all of a sudden, like, Oh yeah, something yeah. has shifted. I, yeah, I feel like that's really common where it's like, it feels really slow. And then you kind of hit like a, a point where everything kind of starts to like, um, really, really impact and things kind of almost like pick up speed. Like I think of like a, the snowball metaphor where it's like, Oh my gosh. Okay. Now we're like, we're really, really making changes, but it can be like a slow buildup. And with the, the peer acronym that you just described, I also think that sounds so much like reparenting, right. In yeah. terms of like the inner child work. Cause that is very much like what children need from 
securely yeah. attached adults when they are dysregulated is that like investigation yeah. and that responsiveness and attunement. Mm-hmm. So I love that. And I, I love that premise of like creating internal secure attachment. Cause I think as adults, we really need both. Like we need, uh-huh. we need the secure attachment with others and like a very real community connection way. But then we also need that like secure internal environment where we can like reparent and attune to ourselves. Absolutely. You know, I'm sure you've heard people sort of interrogate, you know, we have this common saying in our culture, I feel like of, you know, you can't love your, you can't love anybody until you love yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. But in reality, like sometimes like we need other people to love us (laughs) to learn that. And at the same time, like when you start to feel a greater sense of like self-trust and self-love with yourself, it's like, mind-blowing you know it's like a whole you know the world just like opens up yes yeah so much Mm -hmm. um yeah I was curious also about um specifically how rejection sensitivity dysphoria uniquely Mm -hmm. impacts the people with in-between identities and how you see social anxiety showing up for those those populations yeah you know it's like I think death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Mm. Like there are so many small instances very early on in many mixed race um, kids' lives of like subtle experiences or and large experiences of rejection or Mm. misunderstanding even, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe mom doesn't know how to do your hair or maybe Mm. you go to a sleepover and like, you know, people are like, oh, like you wear a bonnet at night, right? It can be that. It could be going to the store with your parents and like somebody thinks like your mom is the nanny or that you and your mom are friends if you're adults, you know? Um, There's like all these like small, subtle ways that we get the message that like there's something different about us. And unless that difference is like explicitly sort of like, oh, like celebrated, I think like, you know, as little kids Mm -hmm. and even like our parts who are little kids, like they can just internalize things and they just feel like, oh, like there must be something wrong with me. And then on the flip Mm -hmm. side, even when there are aspects of who we are like celebrated, it can be very exoticizing right or we can start to rely Mm. on like getting that 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 celebration and that level of interest from Mm -hmm. people and so you know our 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 bodies our nervous systems are so like attuned to you know what did the person say how did they look at me did they did they look at my hair I keep using hair just as an example right but Mm -hmm. um you know I I'm thinking of an experience I had with a physical therapist who just out of nowhere was like oh I didn't expect your hair to be so soft right and I just didn't even see Mm -hmm. that coming (laughs) yeah yeah um wow Yeah. And, you know, again, like we can experience rejection in our family too, of, um, you know, being commented on, you know, our skin tone being too light or too dark. So I go, you know, I, I, again, like I said, I can sometimes use these terms interchangeably because I think it's a matter of sort of this, the, the framework you're coming from the glasses you're wearing, right. Is it social anxiety? Is it rejection sensitivity? Is it trauma? Um, you know, I think it's it's interesting to think about them from um, 
to think about it just from those different perspectives. And either way, right, I think the the point is that there's a conditioning. Um, yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and it sounds like a lot of othering, right? Cause you're talking yeah. about like, you're talking about maybe more kind of overt like criticism or, you know, Oh, why do you wear a bonnet or, you know, no one mm-hmm. knowing how to do your hair, but then also almost that like fetishization or like objectification that can happen mm-hmm. where it like is presented as if it's a compliment or as if it's something nice, but it's still very like othering and it's still kind of sending yeah. the message of like, you are not belonging in this space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we all want to feel a sense of like membership. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be really hard if, you know, you're different. Yeah. 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 I know it's a, a different experience, but hearing you talk about that is reminding me of also um, what a lot of like neurodivergent people experience, like totally. the experiences of like autism and ADHD, especially when you said the like death by a thousand paper cuts thing um, yeah. where, you know, they talk about rejection sensitivity with like ADHD and autism. And I think at first people would almost talk about rejection sensitivity as if, again, it was like an inherent part of you were like an inherent flaw within you of like, Oh, you're just so sensitive to rejection. But then you look at the life experience and it's like, well, when you get constantly fucking rejected, you know, when you're like constantly experiencing social alienation and criticism and rejection, of course you build up sensitivity to it. Um, so that, that's kind of what I was thinking of as you were saying that. Yes. And I've totally borrowed that language from like the ADHD and autism world. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm neurodivergent and I think, you know, I've, I've wondered for myself sometimes, like, is it, is it my neurodivergence? Is it, you know, my mixedness, like these parts Mm -hmm. of me who carry the experience of rejection. And truthfully, I think it's all of it. And, you know, I think that there's, a, probably a high, you know, co-occurrence of um, neurodivergence in people with in-between identities. I mean, we know there is yeah. a, a high occurrence of like neurodivergence in queer folks mm-hmm. um, and vice versa. So Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you're holding multiple of those identities of being like queer and mixed race and neurodivergent, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's hard to even separate out because there's so many different like overlapping experiences of, of alienation. Right. Exactly. I mean, and I think that's an important point. You just made that for mixed people, like our mixedness is not the only layer of our experience. We are all like mixed and something. And (laughs) other identities that you're also holding. Yeah. So there's a lot of like layers. I mean, I guess that's just kind of intersectionality, right? But like a lot of layers of of complexity there. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Well, what, what else? I'm just kind of going to open it up for like, what else would you like to talk about or what else have you found in your work to be, to be important to speak on? Ooh, that's a good question. Super open-ended, like, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put me on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think the other thing that I, I wrote down as a note that we haven't really gotten to is when it comes to the racial trauma piece, you know, as mixed people, we often hold both like oppressor and oppressed lineage. Um, you know, I feel like probably across the board, right. I'm like trying to think of an experience where it would be (laughs) more like sort of like simple than that, but yeah, like, I think we, we all carry both oppressor and oppressed lineage in our bodies. And 
Mm. Um, both for both of those lineages, right? Like, I mean, we've talked a lot about racial trauma in the context of mixed people. And like, I think assumed through that is like black indigenous people of color. Right. But I think that white people in the context of the U S specifically, like white people also have racial trauma, right? Like there's a certain trauma of being, um, of like, of like putting yourself in this oppressor role, And there's a trauma in um, just whiteness in general, because whiteness is so um, is so invisibilizing of like the cultural heritage of different kinds of white people. Right. Right. Because everyone just assimilated, like basically by assimilating into whiteness, we like lost touch with our actual ancestry. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think for a lot of people in the U.S. and in the Western world, like we are really far removed from different cultural practices that we yeah. had around connection, well-being, you know, um, and, and in particular, like Black, Indigenous and people of color and Black and Indigenous people in particular have been, you know, it has been strategically Um, we've been strategically, uh, removed, um, and forbidden from like engaging in different cultural practices. Mm. Right. There's like a lot of really good native American, like, um, uh, commentary on this around just Mm. like the erosion of cultural practices and how that results in what's called the soul wound. Eduardo, um, Duran is the person who coined that term, I think. Um, and I noticed that mixed people, you know, struggle to connect with their identities, um, and their communities in general. And then I think mixed people who are mixed with white, like also struggle in this way where we don't often feel entitled to learning about our whiteness, or we actually feel like it's bad to Mm. like be connected to our whiteness. And I think that it can actually be one of the key components of healing our racial trauma wounds is giving ourselves permission to even think back like that there, you know, there was a time when racial trauma and um, oppressorness in the white world was like not there, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is something that has been created over time in the human experience. Mm -hmm. Um, of course there's always been, you know, humans are animals. Like there's always been competition and membership and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, I think that as far as reconnecting to different parts of your identity, feeling like a strong sense of identity, it's important to think about how do I relate to the aspects of my lineage that might be aligned with, um, oppression, right. That might have perpetuated oppression. Yeah. And I can imagine how, how complex that is to hold both sides of that too, to like, to have both sides of that in your lineage and kind of like in your body and your identity. It's, it's really interesting to think about. Um, and yeah, as you were saying that I was thinking about, um, 
what is the word? Oh, uh, diaspora. Like the, yeah, yeah. you know, um, so my, my ancestry, my family is Jewish. We come mm-hmm. from like Ashkenazi Jewish lineage. And so my, my ancestors like immigrated here through Ellis Island, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know very much about, you know, about my cultural history and, um, Judaism was also like not passed down. Like it, it kind of mm-hmm. like, it died out in my grandparents' generation. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. been so interesting because when I hear about the these things I think about like, yeah, just this like total lack of sense of like cultural identity that I've had throughout my life where it's like, I know hypothetically that like my family's from Poland and we're Jewish and like, this is, but like, there's no, no traditions have been passed down. No, like cultural identity has been passed down. It's just kind of Uh. this like assimilation into just being like white Americans. And it's really, I can feel like a disembodiment almost from that, or like that, that missing piece of, of lacking that cultural connection. Yeah. And I know you're, you're not alone in that as a person with Jewish ancestry. And it's really interesting because I feel like Jewish people are sort of the only white people in the U S who have this like distinct cultural identity, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, there's so many layers. Um, and it's making me think about, I follow somebody on Instagram and TikTok. I can't remember her name, but she's black and Jewish. And she talks, she was talking recently about how Judaism is specifically supposed to be passed through the the maternal yeah line. maternal lineage is that right mm-hmm. right and like you know there's a whole experience in and of itself like a multicultural experience if you're in a family where maybe the father has Jewish lineage and the mother doesn't um, yeah mm-hmm. that's like a unique in between experience too yeah it's so it's so interesting and I found myself at different times trying to like reconnect with that cultural identity by, even though I wasn't raised practicing Judaism, like kind of finding Jewish community or like going yeah. to, you know, Passover and going to different like holidays and stuff. But I feel this like almost like imposter syndrome because like, I don't speak yeah. Hebrew and I, I didn't mm. have like bat mitzvah and like all mm-hmm. of those, those different things that were just not part of my life. So I feel like that's almost an in-between experience. Cause when I go into Jewish spaces, mm-hmm. I feel like an outsider. Cause I don't speak Hebrew and I I'm not like used to these traditions. Um, but I still like know somewhere in my body and my brain that that's like part of my family and part of my identity. So that's that's definitely my the closest that um I can come to understanding these experiences even as like a a white person in America and and then I think about how how those kinds of feelings are magnified by then actually being like in a body where you are marginalized right or where people like view you as being othered because the the other weird thing with Judaism with being like a white Jewish person is that like no one knows right like I'm you know basically yeah. just appear as like your standard, standard white girl in America. And, yeah. I, and I am in terms of my experience <laughs> of like privilege and, you know, kind of like what my life experience has been, but then also there's this like weird knowledge of intergenerational trauma and like genocide, you know, for my ancestors and stuff. So it's, it all gets so complex. I'm just kind of tripping out right now, about <laughs> all the layers. Of yeah. Yeah. It truly is. It truly is when you, right. And like, we don't, talk about it we don't think about it we have this like cultural kind of amnesia but it's like you start to peel back the layers and yeah it's like Pandora's box (laughs) yes very much very much Yeah. yeah um so when you are working with people that that you know kind of have both the like oppressed and oppressor lineage what does it look like to connect with that that lineage and that ancestry like Mm-hmm. What, what is mm-hmm. that? How does that happen in the therapeutic space? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it can look like, you know, it literally exploring your history, whether that's through like ancestry.com mm-hmm. or reading books, you know. Um, I often refer people to my friend uh, Marika Heinrich, I think is her last name. She's Wild Body Somatics on Instagram, mm-hmm. and she does a lot of work with white bodied people and somatic practitioners in particular, but cool. white folks around. Um, you know, these somatic practices that you do, you know, where, where do they come from? And what were the somatic practices of, you know, your white ancestors? Mm. So I think it can be like researching and learning, you know, and experimenting with different ceremonies or rituals Mm -hmm. or things like that. Um, I think it's also, uh, developing a healthy relationship with your privilege where, Mm. um, you know, you're not falling into the trap of, uh, you know, guilt, but that you are finding ways to be accountable and to engage in, you know, anti-racism. Yeah. Um, and thinking, you know, and, and I'm a, the hugest fan in particular of interpersonal, like anti-racism, like yeah. how does, how do power dynamics show up in your relationships? You know, how are you showing up for the people in your lives who are maybe darker skin than you, right. Or, or, um, experience like a different level of like financial insecurity than you, um, again, not necessarily like guilt or like saviorism but just being mindfully aware and um you know doing what you can to 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 show up and use your privilege um and I think that there's like grief to be sat with here too Mm -hmm. right and just like witnessing um all that's sort of been held in this um in this oppressor identity and Mm -hmm. um you know, I mean, I think I'm thinking about in internal family systems therapy, you know, we, there's this process of unburdening and it could be sort of like ceremonial, right. And then like the part can take on another job. So, you know, we can do that work with like the parts of us who, um, are connected to like our ancestors and our historical experience. And it sounds, it can sound really like pie in the sky, floofy, but I think it's a really important emotional shift to sometimes like Mm -hmm. be aware that like, oh, there's this part that's carrying this like centuries long experience in my body. And, And what if I just explore and experiment with you know, seeing how I can help it release this burden right yeah, now. Yeah. No, I can see where internal family systems would work beautifully with, with this mm-hmm. kind of work because it, it works so well for holding mm-hmm. like really complex inner landscapes. Right. And, mm-hmm. and being able to connect with like different parts of us that kind of hold different stories. So mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Um, Another thing I was thinking of um, when I was hearing you talk was about how that like intergenerational trauma shows up in the culture of families, like mm-hmm. actual family mm-hmm. culture. And I read a while ago, I read um, Joy Joy DeGruy's work, um, mm-hmm. The Post-Traumatic mm-hmm. Slave Syndrome yeah. book that was about, it was really intense and, and interesting and talked about how like the legacy of slavery um, shows up in like the culture of a lot of black families and kind of approaches Mm -hmm. to like discipline and um, Mm -hmm. different like family values. And then I had a guest on here a couple of years ago, Dr. Han 
Ren, who um, is the child of Asian immigrants. And she talked about the experience of being from like an Asian immigrant family and how how that intergenerational trauma kind of shows up in family values. Mm -hmm. So is that something that you also work with or like explore a lot with with your practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, a lot of the mixed people I work with um, have, uh, you know, like these intersecting identities too around like immigration and so on and so forth. And, and, and not just them, but um, yeah, like they, they carry these stories around kind of like respectability, mm-hmm. right? Um, respectability politics, meaning like um, this idea that, you know, pe- black people, indigenous people, people of color should, should be presentable, should stay in their place. Right. Mm. Um, and that there are ways that that shows up in our parenting, right. Around that parents want to keep their kids safe. Yeah. Right. And, you know, black parents have the police talk with their kids yeah. Yeah. most of the time. Right. So yeah, absolutely. As much as we do like the work around, you know, oppression and like the oppressor sort of lineage side like yes it also shows up um on the other side too yeah yeah, yeah. like almost mm-hmm. it it seems like it has a lot to do with safety you know we're basically yeah. it's like out of out of safety there is this need for like conformity or assimilation or respectability and so it's like all of this all of this fear you know that kind of gets transformed into different like rules and expectations in the family absolutely yeah, there was, oh, there was my, something on the tip of my tongue as you were speaking, maybe it'll come back to me, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. And, oh, here's what it was, is that what I see in mixed people sometimes is um, that maybe carrying some of these intergenerational burdens or intergenerational patterns of parenting and relating to one another, sometimes we can hold on to those because it feels like it keeps us in great in like a closer proximity Mm. to those aspects of our family and our lineage. So we can feel like guilty and, you know, letting go, um, you know, like I should be a hard worker or, um, yeah, just other expectations that might be put on us. Like that almost becomes part of the like family identity or a way of having like belonging in the family culture. Yeah, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. This has been so, so illuminating. Thank you so much. Um, is there anything else that we haven't covered yet that you want to talk about today? No, I think this has been a really rich conversation. Yeah. I, I got a lot out of it. And are you accepting clients or if people want to like learn from you or, or work with you, are there ways that they could do that? Yes, yeah, definitely. I am accepting new clients. Um, I I don't know if this will be published in time, so I'll, I'm doing a social anxiety workshop at the end of July for mixed people. Oh, cool. um, yeah, we'll have it out by the end of July. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And so, you know, people can attend or I'm sure I'll either do it again or post the replay for purchase. So that's a way to work with me, you know, in a... Um, one setting, but I, I am accepting clients. I both um, do psychotherapy uh, based in Michigan, and then I do coaching around identity and belonging for mixed people um, worldwide. So, and I have tons of like free resources and some like low cost resources. Um, I'm always like generating new things. So, yeah, awesome. And I'll, I'll include your website 
and your links in the podcast description for people that want to get in touch with you thank you so much yeah yes. and if, you know if anybody's listening to this and you know something really resonated with you feel free to reach out directly to me on instagram or through email um love to hear how things land for you awesome thank you so much Raina. i really appreciate your time thank you kina i hope you have a good rest of your day